Yeah, of course. Please be seated. pleasure to introduce tonight's lecturer, Mr. Stephen Hankoff. Mr. Hankoff graduated from St. John's College, Annapolis in 1970. As a jazz musician, he's toured the world and performed in around 50 countries as a USIA artistic ambassador. In 2015, he recorded six Bach cello suites on acoustic guitar. These appeared together with a four-volume multimedia iBook that investigates the cello suites, Bach's life and work, and the most celebrated performer of the suites, cellist Pablo Casals. All of the art that you will see tonight is inspired by the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. And the title of the lecture is J.S. Bach and the Six Suites for Cello Solo, a fanciful and extravagant allegory. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Stephen Hankoff.
That was the uh, prelude to the first suite for cello solo by J.S. Bach. First of 36 pieces that comprise the six suites. Hi, I'm Stephen Hancock, and I'm a proud and increasingly grateful graduate of St. John's College class of 1970. I was 21 years old when I graduated, and now I'm about, believe it or not, to turn 70. <clears throat> so to the degree that the institution of the Friday evening lecture is meant to impart any wisdom, let me say to you one thing. In my experience, from 21 to 70 is a blink of an eye, like a Bach-Jig or a Courant. Make the most of what you're given. For the last year and a half, I've been traveling around the country performing a couple of shows that I've created pertaining to the legendary life and music of Bach and the incredible rescue of his music by Felix Mendelssohn and the astonishing rediscovery of the cello solos by a 13-year-old Pablo Casals. I created these presentations and I'm doing this not only because I like to tell stories and play music, but also because I conceive these to be archetypal sagas. By archetypal, I mean descriptions of mostly hidden human inner processes common to all human beings and therefore matters about which it ultimately serves a person to address or confront. And my hope when I perform is not so much my own notoriety as it is the potential emotional or even spiritual enrichment of the people in the audience. So that said, my presentations are full-length theater pieces. So when the dean emailed me to invite me to present my work here, I was not only honored, but I was also stuck. Because on the bottom of her letter, she added that the lecture is supposed to be about 45 minutes. And my shows are like two, two and a half hours. And my memory is that when I was a student here, most of the lectures seemed to me to be a lot longer than 45 minutes. But, <laughs> but be that as it may, in order to comply with this limitation, I've decided to address, to create a, this is a whole new thing you're gonna see tonight, the first and maybe only time I'm ever gonna do it. I decided to address only one, and I hope a significant element or characteristic of Bach's iconic cello suites and of his character, and therefore, the motive force that impelled him to compose this immortal music. I hope you'll indulge me if I exceed the time limit a little bit. In 1720, when Bach was 35 years old, he composed the three sonatas and three partitas for violin solo, and then these three, uh, these six suites for cello solo consecutively. For many reasons, I am persuaded that they are one immensely intimate, intricate, virtuosic, and profound piece of music like St. Augustine's confession, a confession that is likely only he himself would have had the motivation, not to mention the virtuosity, to actually play. And indeed, for a couple of hundred years after he composed them, no one is known ever to have played the cello suites. Then in 1889, that's 139 years after he died, and 169 years after he composed them, a 13-year-old kid on the very day that his daddy bought him his first cello, went wandering into a dusty old used bookstore on the Barcelona docks. Barcelona, that means like a thousand miles away from Curtin, where Bach composed this music, okay? And there, in a stack of yellowed and torn sheet music directly beneath a worn out copy of Beethoven's cello sonatas, 
The kid laid his eyes on that. How'd they get there? Who knows? He later said that he immediately knew he held, as he put it, the crown jewels. He said, all I could do was to stare at them and caress them. I practiced them every day for 12 years before I summoned the courage to perform one in public. So if you're looking for a reason to believe in something like divine intervention or something like that, well, here it is. That kid was Pablo Casals, the cellist who was the single most celebrated, renowned, influential, not to mention highest paid musician of the 20th century. I believe the great Casals articulated it about Bach best. He said, the miracle of Bach has not appeared in any other art. To strip human nature until its divine attributes are made clear, to inform ordinary activities with spiritual fervor, to give wings of eternity to that which is most ephemeral, to make divine things human and human things divine. Such is Bach, the greatest and purest music of all time. So now I want to tell you a little bit about myself, how I got here, and how my recording of the Bach cello suites and my writing my book and creating these performances about this great man, how it all came to be. I've never been somebody who believed in things. But how this all came to me feels to me like what they call a destiny. So it makes me wonder if you know, people come to this planet with a destiny that we don't get to know until after we've done it. Anyway, I never had any guitar lessons. I never had a guitar teacher. I never had a music teacher. Sophomore music tutorial with Mr. Comber was my only music class ever. And when I graduated, I had no idea what kind of work I would do or how to even get a job or even how to look for a job. I always had a knack, though, for being able to play the guitar. So eventually I landed a job teaching it. And occasionally I landed a, a coffee house gig playing and singing folk songs. It's another way of saying I was poor. One thing led to another, and serendipity asserted its unpredictable self. And I can't tell you exactly what moved me, but I started to transcribe classic piano ragtime by people like Scott Joplin to the guitar. I entered and won a national contest at a Scotch Joplin festival, and then I got to do a concert with him, the legendary U.B. Blake. Do you know U.B. Blake? You can say so. Did you ever hear of him? When I met him, he was 96 years old. He died at 100. He was still out there doing concerts. I'm sitting backstage with U.B. I like telling stories, you'll see. And, and uh, he told me that he owed his longevity to two things, doing what he loved and his diet. So I said, well, what's your diet? And he said, chocolate and cigarettes. <laughs> anyway, we're sitting backstage and this lovely young woman comes up and she comes up to him and she says, oh, Mr. Blake, I'm your biggest fan. I think you're the greatest. And she, you know, she quailed all over him and she kissed him on the, his bald forehead. And then she said, can I get your autograph? So he autographs her program, and she goes away. And Yubi, at 96, turns to me. He says, man, if I was only 90 again. <laughs> that's kind of like, that's the music world, loose like that. But anyway, then I got myself invited to go down to New Orleans to the French Quarter and play jazz down there. And by the way, I played jazz with 
a lot of guys, but including Michael Meeks, who graduated from, uh, who played piano and graduated from St. John's two years before I did, and with Hazel Schluter of Hazel and the Delta Ramblers, who graduated the year before I did. I wasn't the only Johnny doing that. Immersing myself in authentic New Orleans jazz led me to find out about swing, which was sort of the next thing. So in a nutshell, let me tell you about a little bit about the development of our American music. I'm doing this for a reason. Stephen Foster, that, that uh, monument is in Pittsburgh, by the way, was our first great homegrown songwriter. And even though he gave us such iconic songs as my old Kentucky home, old folks at home, Camptown Races, Beautiful Dreamer, and so many more, he never even once visited the South. He would not have known the Suwannee River from the Hudson River. He died in a hotel room in New York City when he was 37 years old. That's two years older than Mozart when he died and a year younger than Felix Mendelssohn when he died. In Foster's pocket, he had 38 cents in Confederate script plus three U.S. pennies to his name. John Philip Sousa was America's first musical superstar. In 1889, his Washington Post March became America's first number one hit on what grew up to become the hit parade. He was actually quite the genius. He performed in his lifetime more than 20,000 concerts, if you can imagine. And in his spare time, he composed 137 marches, still, I believe, the best marches ever composed. 15 operettas and many more things, including 322 arrangements of 19th century Western European symphonic works. At first, when the first player pianos were invented and then after that phonographs, Sousa predicted that people in America would stop taking it upon themselves to make music and instead would rely on these infernal new contraptions, as he put it. I'm sad to say he was right. Did you know that at the turn of the 20th century, about 90% of Americans took part in making music. Now, it's about 10%. I'm not counting pressing a button on your iPod. You make any music yourself? Thank God for a freshman chorus, you know? At least you do that, right? Anyway, that was 1889. 10 years later, this man, Scott Joplin, composed the first million seller. By million seller, I mean sheet music because people played piano. He wrote the Maple Leaf Rag. Ragtime was not really called ragtime when it initiated. It was called ragged time. But as Americans like to be lied words and shorten them, it turned into ragtime. And under the terms of Joplin's contract with the publisher, he would have been entitled to a royalty that would have yielded him an income of $4. That's about 115 bucks in current rates. I think you could say that Joplin, if you ever listen to Joplin's rags, please do. They're, they're amazing. I'd say he did for rags what Chopin may have done for the mazurka. And like Foster, he was sick, penniless, and disappointed at the end of his life. In other words, he was a musician. He lost his mind and died from syphilis at the age of 49. So the next phase of American music that happened, happened in New Orleans, and we all know it as jazz. Jazz actually was born with the name Jass, J-A-S-S, which was New Orleans vernacular for the act of sexual intercourse. And indeed, it had a fairly scatological beginning. The thing about New Orleans, it's unlike any other American city, because for two significant reasons. One, it's a Caribbean port. And at the turn of the 20th century, piracy was still considered a fairly 
lucrative profession. So the pirates would do what they did in the Caribbean, land in New York, and uh, in, in New Orleans to have a good time, and it became known as a rum port. Well, that was one difference. The other difference is, unlike the East Coast cities, New Orleans was settled by Catholics, not by Protestants. And as one New Orleans historian put it to me when I lived there, he said, the difference is, them damn Protestants, he said, they sin and they feel guilty and promise never to do it again. We Catholics, we sin, we go to confession, and then we start all over again. So the city fathers of New Orleans saw a chance to make money, and they created a place called Story of the District, they called it. That's along Basin, Basin Street was one side of it. It was called the District, and what it was was a legalized red light district, a series of about six blocks square of mansions, each one of which was devoted to prostitution. They were all brothels. So the boys who played musical instruments would sit outside. They weren't allowed to play inside the brothels. Sit outside, and when a man would come out, having finished whatever he was doing, they would hope that he would put coins in his cup. And so the, the original jazz band had a rhythm section of a tuba player and a banjo player. And it had what was called a front line of a cornet or trumpet player and a clarinet player and a trombone player. And I said it was a scatological beginning, but not only the front line was designed with, of the church, that the trumpet was the preacher preaching hellfire and brimstone and the clarinets were the women in the congregation going hallelujah and the men, the, the trombones were the males in the congregation. So what happened to spread jazz all around the country was this. Those are some of the mansions, by the way, that were torn down in the 30s to make way for a uh, low-cost housing for welfare recipients. Imagine, imagine the tourist money that would come in uh, to the district if they were still standing. The great genius of early New Orleans jazz was this man. His name was Jelly Roll Morton. Another word, Jelly Roll is another word for sex. Uh, so the way jazz spread around the country and became a craze was because of the US Navy and because of World War I. There was a law that said you cannot have a brothel operating within a certain distance, um, within a certain distance uh, of, of a US military installation. And when the war broke out, they set up a, a Navy base at the mouth of the Mississippi, well, Storyville, as the district was called, was too close. So they had to shut it down. So the musicians didn't have a way of making a living anymore. So they went up the Mississippi to St. Louis and then over to, 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 to Kansas City and up to Chicago and to New York. It got to the cities. Well, concurrently, the phonograph was invented. And so that meant they'd bring these jazz bands into the recording studio, play it a piece, press a record, and send it out to the world. And that's how jazz actually spread. The very first jazz hit was called the original Dixieland One Step. It was from 1917. Oh, sorry, sometimes this thing doesn't work. And there's the record by the Dixieland, uh, Dixieland Jazz Band One Step. I decided that instead of just playing Bach, I'm gonna show you how that goes. This is the very first jazz hit ever from 1917, the original Dixieland One Step.
It's not exactly Bach, and if you were paying attention, you may have noticed that I played the last chorus only halfway through. That's on purpose, because jazz, coming from New Orleans, which is a very hot, humid climate, is supposed to be played slow. But recording technology meant you only had three minutes and 15 seconds to finish the piece. So they had to speed it up, and they had to cut out the second half of the last chorus. And that was typical of all the early jazz records. I guess when you're 20 years old now and you're used to digi digitization, you, know, you can do anything you want. Anyway, so I started like, oh, there's Duke Ellington. Yeah, let me tell you about him. Duke said about jazz, by and large, jazz has always been like the kind of man you wouldn't want your daughter to associate with. Well, so what happened is the jazz gets into the cities and, and see, see, the melody of the piece is what you could consider the heart. The rhythm, you consider the sexuality. And the harmony, the intellect. So it gets to the city. New Orleans is nothing but an emotional place. It's all about the sexuality and the, and the feeling, the heart. You get to the city, and now all of a sudden you got you know, three trumpet players, and you got three saxophone players, and three cornet, uh, you know, trombone players, whatever. But now you have to write out their parts because they have to play in unison, and you can't improvise it anymore. So, so what happened was the harmonies became far more sophisticated and more and more sophisticated, and that gave rise to a movement called swing. And swing held sway from the mid-late 20s until like basically 1948 when Charlie Parker happened. And I'm not gonna talk about him, but, uh, Swing was a huge movement in America, and all your parents or grandparents, depending on how old you are, danced to it, I promise. But the point is, swing came along and it intellectualized American music. So I guess what happened is I got a reputation for playing and knowing about Americana, and one day the phone rings, and it's a woman who says she's from a program called Arts America, which is part of the United States Information Agency, which is part of the State Department, which is part of the government, would you like to travel to play and tell the story of the development of American music? What I just told you guys, only play it all. We want to send you and your friend Buddy Wachter, who's a great, great four-string banjo player, and he's my friend, to three cities in Brazil, three in Argentina, to three in Ecuador. How about it? How about it? What would you say? <laughs> so I said, well, yeah. So in short, from 1993 until about 2006, I had the grand experience of concertizing and teaching master classes all over the world, about 50 countries, all over South America, Africa, Middle East, Asia, India, China a couple of times. This was the gig of a lifetime. So here are just a few of the enduring lessons I learned while traveling the world. One, I'm there are endless ways to lead a life. That's one. Also, more than half the countries in the world have been established since the end of World War II, and almost all these governments of these countries treat their citizens horribly. Most men and women in the world measure the success of their lives according to how many children they sire or bear. The more, the better. Americans are not among the happier people in the world. A lot of people seem to like traveling musicians, but they don't want to have to pay them. And I have too much damn stuff. Those were some of the things I learned. Not all, but some. And it's best not to get stuck in old ways of thinking about your own life 
only by virtue of the fact that it is yours. But then as I was approaching my 60th birthday, I decided it was now or never. If I'm going to give myself over to transcribing the Bach cello suites for guitar, it's going to happen now or never. So I want to say something about the art and process of transcription. Transcription is decidedly not, not a process of transferring the notes that Bach wrote for the cello onto the guitar. And since cello is a one-note-at-a-time melody instrument, and guitar is idiomatically suited for playing chords, bass lines, and things like that. The idea is to turn each of the 36 movements of the cello suites into a guitar piece. In other words, I am not a musical stenographer taping out the notes on a different instruments. I'm going to show you what I mean. Here are the notes that Bach wrote for one of the pieces in the cello suites. guitar that would be empty. Here's how it sounds transcribed. Get it? If you really like that, you can buy the CD. It's on there. So, I felt that in order to serve the profundity of Bach's music, it was incumbent upon me to learn as much as I could about the man, the circumstances of his life when he composed his masterpiece, and the meaning of the music itself, if I could. So, here's the history. Bach was born in 1685. That's two years after Newton published the Principia. And by the time he was nine years old, he'd seen three siblings die, and then his mother died. His father remarried. That's his father, Ambrosius. But then 12 weeks later, he died, and Bach was a nine-year-old orphan sent off to live with a 21-year-old brother who was a man he'd probably never even met, or if he had met, it would have been at a family funeral. Graduated from high school at 15, spent Two years as a boy soprano, training to be a church singer, got a job for a few months as a lackey, got his first real musical gig as a church organist for four years in a town called Arnstedt. And there he met, courted, and fell in love with Maria Barbara Bach, a distant cousin and also an orphan. And when he got his next job as an organist at a church in Mulhausen, her hometown, they wed. They were there only a year when he became court organist at Weimar. That's the palace in Weimar. Duke Wilhelm Ernst Weimar was a religiously strict, austere, and ascetic dukedom where he worked for nine years playing organ in the Duke's chapel six days a week and where he composed most of his organ pieces. When he's 32, he meets this man. This is the Calvinist Prince Leopold of a tiny, insignificant principality called Anhalt Curtain. Leopold hears Bach's play, offers him the position of Kapellmeister, which means the chief musical officer of the town. Bach accepted, he's thrown in jail for not fulfilling his contract in Weimar, he's released, go, he and Maria Barbara, and there by now four children move on to Curtin, where he's there to compose secular music, mostly songs, for Thursday evening jam sessions. He was a songwriter, he was Bob Dylan. They did it here, this palace, every Thursday night. 
secular music as opposed to church music because Leopold is a lover of music. And as I mentioned, he's a Calvinist, and Calvinists don't use music in their church services like Lutherans do. So Bach and Leopold become best friends. Maria, birth, Maria Barbara gives birth to a son. They name him Leopold. Baby Leopold is the third Bach infant to die. So if you're counting, that's three siblings, his parents, and three children who have died. Maria Barber, the woman who shared the hardships of 14 years of miserably paid physicians for ignorant, uninterested, ungrateful, and dictatorial dukes, clergy, churches, city councils, and who bore seven children and buried three of them, is the only one who ever cared about him, and she is the only one he's ever loved. Now, three years pass, and these are the three best years of his life. It is now 1720. He's 35 years old. He's a husband and father of four. And Leopold and Johann Sebastian Bach are best friends. So they go off for a month vacation together. Leopold's paying. He was rich. When he arrives back home, he walks in the door, and he's met with the shocking and horrible news that in his absence, Maria Barbara has died. And no, we don't know why, and to this day, we don't even know where her grave is. So what does he do? He travels to visit his old high school organ teacher and performs a concert where he plays, By the waters of Babylon we wept, an iconic biblical prayer that expresses the grief and desperation of exile from God, and a cantata of his own called I Had Great Distress in My Heart. You can read the librettos. They inform us he's full of grief, rage at life. He's bitter. He's forlorn. He's a man utterly without hope. And what's most salient, at least to me, by this time, he's not yet composed a single one of his grand iconic masterpieces. The immortal work you think of when you think of Johann Sebastian Bach. He returns to Curtin, sits himself down, and pours himself to composing the six sonatas and partitas for violin solo, and these six suites for cello solo. Music that will live for as long as there are creatures on this earth endowed with human sensibilities. And from then on flow the torrent of Bach's masterpieces. And this fact is the central matter that drove my immersion in this project. To put it as clearly as I can, even though this man, Johann Sebastian Bach, endured such immense tragedy, he did not let it define his life or who he was. I think it's time to play something. The fourth movement of each suite is called the Sarabande. I'm choosing this piece because it musically sounds to me like the sonic image of the life of Bach to this point. It's haunting, it is sorrowful, it's got great beauty on the surface and profound meaning in its depths.
A lot of people say Bach couldn't write melody. <laughs> on, the sixth, on my 68th birthday last year, on that very day, it was reported that the gravitational waves that Albert Einstein predicted 100 years ago were finally detected. Confirming his theory of general relativity, the confirmation was captured in the form of what the physicists called a celestial chirp. This was a sound captured and conveyed by these gravitational waves, a power 50 times greater, they said, than the energetic output of all the stars in the universe combined. For me, it's like almost impossible to imagine what this really means, but here's what's even more amazing. That simple chirp, it rose to the note middle C, and then it stopped. So it seems to me that science is saying the universe is actually made of music and it's in the key of C, and I wonder, I have wondered, if Bach is the one who heard and then transmitted this music of the spheres to the rest of us. You all, I presume, have seen this picture before tonight, right? That's the single most iconic portrait of the man. We have very few authentic portraits, but I'm gonna tell you about this one. He had it painted two years before he died in 1748. It was a, you needed to, have, to submit a portrait to be able to be accepted into a group called the Misler Society, which is a group whose aim was to further what they called musical science. Membership was listed, limited to 20 people, and Bach wasn't a luminary. He didn't know if he could get in. Over the years, other members were luminaries, people like Telemann and Leopold Mozart and Handel. I love what the great... Dr. Albert Schweitzer said about this portrait. He said, the man as he looked and behaved was only the opaque envelope destined to lodge the artistic soul within. So here's the amazing story of this painting. On Bach's death, his second son, Carl Philip Emanuel, who by the way was renowned and was known as the great Bach, he inherited the painting. And when he died, his widow had it. Then when she died, their daughter had it. But we lose track of it. It gets lost until 1936. We're talking about 200 years. Nobody knows where this thing went. Somehow or another, it ends up in a junk shop in a town called Breslau, which today is part of the Czech Republic. There, a Jewish man named Walter Jenke, he's in hiding, and he's seeking to escape the Nazi murderers who are after him. They're hunting him down. Somehow this painting caught his eye, so he paid the equivalent of about $15 for it. And he somehow managed to escape and got himself and the painting to England. There, he landed a job as a gardener in the home of a man named Mr. Gardener, who placed the portrait over his own fireplace. Well, the son of this Mr. Gardener grew up to become Sir John Elliot Gardener, the man who in the year 2000 conducted all of Bach's sacred cantatas, thereby becoming Sir John Elliot, and who three years ago published his own biography of Bach, Music in the Castle of Heaven. Sir John said seeing this portrait over the fireplace daily is what brought him to J.S. Bach. So take a look. That's the image of the greatest composer who ever lived. When I gaze at this portrait, what I see is a man unknowable. His eyes are completely impenetrable. There's no, no entry, no invitation to knowing the inner experience of being this man. 
person can't help but get the feeling that the Bach who posed for the artist here was a man determined to present an image of himself as serious and unaffected by circumstance, an intelligence uninformed by emotion. Now, the first cello suite, to me, is an expression of innocence and optimism. I call that disappointment waiting to happen. Second suite is all about sorrow and the introspection that the experience of inner pain inspires or compels. Suite three looks outward as though the insights gained by means of introspection generate the desire to take in the magnitude and wonder of the world in which we find ourselves. I made up a word for this experience. I call it extrospection. And extrospection necessarily gives rise to the insistence of suite four, exploration and the experience that exploration evokes. Because honest and forthright exploration gives rise to discovery, that is, to disillusionment. You get out there and you find out that you were wrong about some things, or maybe even wrong about everything. So disillusionment is a good thing because it's better to stand on the ground of reality than it is to be in illusion. And such discovery of reality generates catharsis. As the composer of Suite One grows up and matures and becomes a man, and thus we get to, to the meat and the power and the protein of Suite Five. Then Suite Six. Suite Six is the expression of the thrall of wonder. For it is wonder that enables transcendence. That is celebration, exaltation, and exaltation. Without wonder, there is no transcendence. So he begins at solitude, but his destination is celebration. Celebration of life itself and his reverence for its creator. As he once said, as only he could have said, I only play the notes. It is God himself who makes the music. That might sound naive to people of our time and generation. I guess materialism and spirituality have always had a battle between where will people put their minds and feelings. Bach didn't have that ambivalence. As I mentioned, I'm compelled to choose only one element of the Bach cello suites to talk about. So I want to talk about Bach the metaphysician and the metaphysics implicit in the six suites for cello solo. I mentioned the noble Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Even before he was Dr. Albert Schweitzer, he was an organist and a very important early biographer of Bach. He wrote, Bach's real religion was not Orthodox Lutheranism, but mysticism. And two cogent pieces of evidence jump out for this conclusion, that Bach was a mystic. First, we know the contents of his considerable library when he died because the books are listed in the formal legal inventory taken at his death. When Bach died in testate, the state was quick to compile a thorough listing of his possessions in the spirit of rendering unto Caesar because the state wanted whatever taxes it could squeeze from the Bach family. And squeeze they did, such that Bach's second wife and widow, Anna Magdalena Bach, was rendered so impoverished that she became an almswoman, a woman supported by charity. And when she died, she landed in an unmarked pauper's grave. Such gratitude for his 27 years of service. And according to Philip Spitta, who was Bach's first biographer, quote, 
He was fond of reading theological and edifying books, and his library included 83 volumes of that class at his death. Johnny's might like this piece of, this little tidbit I'm going to tell you, because we don't know how many different titles he may have actually owned, because at that time, when a person bought a book, he was only buying the pages of the book unbound. It was up to the purchaser to buy the binding. Therefore, a frugal book buyer, and Bach was indeed a frugal man, would have bound several, several books into one volume. Thus, 83 volumes cited by Spitta could well have accounted for more than 250 books. And among the volumes that Bach owned was an eight-volume anthology of hymns, psalms, sermons, and religious poetry by the mystic Paul Wagner, collectively and irresistibly entitled The Whole Burnt Spiritual Offering of Devout Souls. And there were sermons of the medieval mystic Dominican preacher Johannes Tauler, whose doctrine about the blessed contemplation of the divine nature, certainly mystical, most certainly influenced Bach's spiritual demeanor and his choices of libretto. In addition, and maybe even more compelling is this, Bach became a member of the Leipzig Pythagorean Society. This might be the only audience. I don't have to tell them who Pythagoras was. So inasmuch as there are six suites, and each suite is comprised of six movements, and he contemporaneously composed six violin sonatas and partitas, as well as sixes appearing in many of his curtain masterpieces. For example, six Brandenburg concertos, six violin concertos, six English suites, six partitas for harpsichord, on and on. The clear conclusion to me is that composing in sixes is not merely an aesthetic consideration, it's a spiritual one. So now to the metaphysics. For Pythagoreans, the universe, including most significantly all souls that inhabit the universe, is created from number. And according to Pythagorean principles, the number one is the original undifferentiated unity, oneness. We moderns call it the singularity from which the universe, time, space, and matter all came to be. For Pythagoreans, monad, one, creates all other number or multiplicity. Number becomes all things. In other words, for Pythagoreans, for Pythagoras, for Bach, just like for us, unity explodes and becomes everything. Now, Pythagoras called the number six the procreative number, the creator of all souls. And here is how. Six equals two times three. And the number two represents the divine feminine and you guessed it, the number three represents the divine masculine. And two times three equals six, or the articulation of the universe, because all things come into existence by virtue of the harmonious intermingling of two and three. The unification of the divine feminine and divine masculine. Harmony is also embodied in the number six, specifically because in the Pythagorean musical scale, there are six tones to the octave. And considering Bach's nature and what most mattered to him and his devotion to Lutheran orthodoxy and biblical text, maybe Bach meant for the six suites to represent or even to echo the six days of creation. Light, I don't think it reaches the firmament, earth, the heavenly bodies, life, and humanity itself. So now I want to talk about another metaphysically significant number the Sarabande of the fifth suite is entirely unique in the cello suites and even in all of, of, of Bach's literature. 
The great cellist Mstav Rostropovich described the haunting fifth sarabande as the essence of Bach's genius. You've all heard it, whether you know it by name or not, because Yo-Yo Ma plays it every year as they read the names of the people murdered on 9-11. It's the only piece composed without any chords. It's only single notes. And as for those single notes, there are exactly 108 of them. The number 108, by the way, that's three cubed times two squared for whatever significance that may be. I'm sure there is something that I haven't thought of. It appears in almost all religions and spiritual traditions as numerologically significant. For example, there are 108 beads in the Hindu prayer rosary, also known as the strings of enlightenment. And in Sikhism, devotees use a mala, or a sacred string that has 108 knots tied up in a string of wool instead of beads. There are 54 letters in the Sanskrit alphabet. Each one has a masculine and a feminine form. 54 times 2 equals 108. For Buddhists, 108 is the number reached by multiplying the senses, smell, touch, taste, hearing, sight, and consciousness, by whether they are painful, pleasant, or neutral. That's 6 times 3 is 18. And then again, by whether these are internally generated or externally occurring, times 2 is 36. And yet again, by past, present, and future times three, that is 108 feelings. Six times three times two times three equals 108. And as for us Westerners, do you recall in the Odyssey, there are 108 suitors coveting Penelope's hand, all of whom Odysseus must slay. What must that symbolize? I mean, after all, as with Bach, I presume that there's nothing in Homer that is without meaning. And a few months ago, I was talking to Ms. Brand, are you out there, about this. And she pointed out wisely that in America, we have exactly 108 stitches on a baseball. <laughs> Go O's. <laughs> now, Bach could not have known this, but it's true nonetheless. The distance from the Earth to the sun and the Earth to the moon is approximately 108 times the diameter of the sun and the moon, respectively. So... Maybe there's something going on here that's more than meets the rational eye. I could go on, but I imagine you get the idea, right? Now, the number 108 would have held spiritual, mystical meaning for Bach because it signifies the pentagram with which, which both Pythagoreans and Christians of Bach's time considered a geometric expression of purity and therefore of God himself. So here's how. The circle represents the world. Contained by the world is a pentagon, a five-sided figure with equal sides, and if you draw diagonals from each point of the pentagon, you get a pentagram. And the angles formed by the intersecting lines of the pentagram with one another equal 108. Furthermore, the diagonals inside the pentagon form another regular pentagon in the center of the figure with, of course, the potential for their own additional diagonals to be drawn thus generating yet another regular pentagram further inside the figure. This process could go on indefinitely, and this property of indefinite continuation gives rise to the notion of infinity, which notion in turn suggests the expression of God himself. Plausibly just as significant, Bach certainly would have known that the 108th verse of Genesis reads, Male and female, he created them, 
and he blessed them, and he named them humankind. I believe that Bach composed this masterpiece of ultimate simplicity, profound personal expression, and unending depth as his acknowledgement of his participation with Maria Barbara in the very nature of human existence. Male and female unify to create life. Life gives over to death. In this saraban, the most contemplative, the most haunting, the most heavenly music, Sebastian Bach touches tenderly one last time the soul of Maria Barbara Bach and bids his love goodbye. And with his blessings and gratitude, she continues on her earth, eternal journey and he on his earthly one. Farewell, my love. And so the mourning of J.S. Bach is complete. So here's the Sarabande of the fifth suite.
Sometimes you lose it. I want to leave you with a question to ponder. Here it is. When you're immersed in this great and amazing music, are the feelings with which you respond, the experience you have, are they elicited or are they evoked? In other words, are the emotions somehow contained in the music or are they in you? What you see here is the title page in Bach's handwriting of the violins, sonatas, and partitas. We don't have his copy of the cello suites. We only have it in Anna Magdalena's hand. But we do have this. Bach wrote out his title pages variously in German, French, and Italian, and nowhere is his calligraphy ever careless. He was not a careless man. And in this instance, he chose to write it out in Italian. You can see that the words se solo are the very top of the page, even above the title and above his signature. For some reason, they've always translated this as six solos. After all, there are six of them, but you know what? Rendered properly in Italian, that's not six solos. If he'd meant six solos, he should have written se soli. And as I say, he was never careless that way. Rendered properly, you know what se solo means? It means you are alone. So for me, this is Bach, oceanic with music, terse with words, his only explicit utterance of the motive force for composing the violin and cello masterpieces. He begins, you are alone. And the ultimate statement about these masterpieces is this. The voice of the violin of the sonatas and partitas is the most intimate expression of Maria Barbara Bach singing the prayer of her heart. And the voice of the cello is Sebastian Bach's very own baritone, now calling out and beseeching, now whispering, now roaring, always undefendedly, nakedly, revealing himself to his core, the deepest expression of his being, and singing to the very depths of his soul. Now, the title of my presentation is a fanciful and extravagant allegory, and I haven't yet presented that, so here it is, the allegory. I only want to add two more words, and then I'll leave you. Those two words are, beat Navy tomorrow, three words. <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach and the Six Suites for Cello Solo, a fanciful and extravagant allegory. astrophysicists, the high priests of our age, the universe, everything, came into being all at once about 13 billion 700 million years ago. Imagine. The singularity, a point of infinite density containing all matter, including the materials that are our very bodies, yet having no dimension, prescient Euclid's point that which has no part, exploded, generating and emanating and scattering itself, becoming time and space and mass, and thereby creating the conditions for evolving life itself. Mystics say that creation, or the seminal event, what we like to call the Big Bang, 
a playfully sexually suggestive appellation, is or was like the grand aha, the instantaneous awakening of the entity who awakens to the realization that he is who he is. And who he is, is everything. Earth is about 4,300,000,000 years old, only a little less old than the sun, the star around which Earth revolves. That is, it took the universe 9,400,000,000 or so years to form our tiny planet, which is to say that there was no such place as Earth for the first two-thirds of the life of the universe, give or take. In other words, Earth is an infant child of the parent universe. Homo sapiens, or the self-congratulatory knowing man, has been here about 200,000 years. A long time from the perspective of one person, but only a bit less than 1 21,500th of the time of the existence of the Earth and less than one seventy-two thousandths of the time of the existence of the universe. That is, it took about 13,700,000,000 years, minus about 200,000 years, for the universe to evolve creatures who stand upright on two legs and who are self-aware. These creatures, us, we were born wondering about, well, everything. We're born knowing that we are going one day to die. We're conscious of ourselves as separate, both from others of our kind and from everything else, yet connected in some way like an integral thread in the fabric of this mysterious reality. Each one of us has the experience of selfness or individuality, an ego identity. We all have will. And we can all feel desire, shame, yearning, joy, rage, fear, sorrow, jealousy, hunger, need, love. We're aware that we feel such feelings and that others of our kind also feel such feelings. And on top of that, we have inherent capacity for reason and language, or logos. Civilization itself has only been around for about 5,000 years, or only 50 centuries. So just in case anyone is feeling existentially special, 5,000 years equals about 1, 2 billion, 750 millionth, or 0. 0.000000035. That's about 3 and 1 half 10 billionths of time. Man has prospered on Earth. Consciousness gives rise to the need to explain reality, life, death, purpose, origin, birth, relationship, but not easily to knowledge in the sense of mathematical deduction and duplicable experimentation. That is, man became good at storytelling, but not yet at science. But in the year 1473, as man and the Western countries counts the passing of time, there was born a child whose name was Nicolaus Copernicus. 
and in 1543, when Copernicus published his book on the revolutions of heavenly spheres, the divine entity whom men had always called, and Johann Sebastian Bach would one day call, God, linguistically an oddly primitive sound, or an utterance of a creature who has not yet developed complex language or even fine motor control of his laryngeal throat and tongue muscles of articulation, yawned, rubbed his infinite eyes, and began to take notice. Galileo Galilei and Johannes Kepler came along about a hundred years later, and when they published their books, discourses and mathematical demonstrations were leading to two new sciences, the sacred mystery of the cosmos and the harmony of the world. God felt himself stirred, impelled to give serious thought to the matter that man, whose consciousness is but a pale reflection of his own consciousness, was beginning to figure out the inner workings, the nuts and bolts of the construction of physical reality. He may have felt a kind of satisfaction as his children initiated the exact same process of self-recognition that he himself had initiated an infinitude ago, since before time itself. But he knew that in this process lurked danger, for technical know-how was dangerous, even likely cataclysmic, in the hands of an envious, spiteful, aggressive, greedy, vengeful, but determined, energetic, and curious species. Then a truly frightful event happened. A man named Isaac Newton grew up and became inspired. And in 1685, Newton, writing day and night, eating little and sleeping less, poured forth his masterwork, the Principia Mathematica, in which he revealed the secrets of the mechanics of the relationships between the heavenly bodies, between everything and everything. One might say that God himself realized the gravity of the situation. This would not do. Divine measures needed to be taken to bless creation and to shield it from the undifferentiated and unintegrated impulses of man who would be God if only he could. God considered, man whom I have created has forgotten who he is, who I am, that each soul is but a cell of the body of divine being, the soul of divine consciousness. They have forgotten what matters. Will the saga of ultimate reality end in obliteration? The burgeoning of the knowledge of science is a grand undertaking, but if not tempered with appreciation of beauty, humility, gratitude, love, harmony, and reality itself is empty and self-destructive. How might I remind them? And the universal presence, something, as it had been doing from the first instant of time, without any say-so from the likes of us, continuously extends itself into what was previously nothing. Timelessness participates in time, spacelessness in space, and masslessness in mass like awareness becoming aware of that which it had previously been unaware. And as Newton was laying quill to paper so as to solve the divine dilemma, God caused to be born among us his own messenger, Johann Sebastian Bach. In the parlance of J.S. Bach, that entity who is, he called God. And Bach would have been certain 
that the creation of the soul of man was God's finest and ultimate achievement. God created and sent the messenger whose message was and is. Listen up, hear, pay attention to, bathe yourself in the voice of the source, the very voice of God, all glory to him, soli de gloria. As Bach himself once put it, I only play the notes. It is God himself who makes the music. Johann Sebastian Bach, whose very name translates to Venerable Stream, who is a gift from God, whose purpose was and remains to remind man of the song of ultimate reality, the voice of veneration, the sound of beauty, the sweetness of harmony, the integrity of truth, and ultimately the very purpose of our existence, the ecstasy to merge and to unify with the heavenly source. Thank you very much.